Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah Lutheran Church's Bible study class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we are continuing our series over the book of Revelation. Enjoy. Okay, well, uh, we're getting into our uh, next lesson for today, Revelation chapter 4. And we're, we're going to get now into the visions, all right? Is everybody excited about that? The visions? Yeah, boy, now we can get real wild. So um, what I put up on the board was a little bit of what you've seen before, but I put it up there because it's a reminder in terms of, of the approach that we're taking or I'm taking toward the visions, which again, reminder that there is a, there's a pretty wide difference in Christendom in terms of how people view the, Revela- how be the book of Revelation. And so I'm looking at it from what's called an amillennial perspective. Does anybody remember what the word amillennial means? The word a is the word uh, prefix meaning not, and then millennial is, is, is its own word. So when we get into the... the uh, the part of Revelation that deals with the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. That's where the dividing line is in Christendom uh, in terms of what people, how people interpret that and what they feel about it. So people that feel like that the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth is a literal thing, then they are millennialist in, in terms of that's that thousand-year reign, millennium, and that's what they believe. And so in the South, which is where we live, that is the prominent view, okay? That's the prominent view. Coming out of the Baptist seminaries, the Baptist churches, most of the what's called Reformed churches and Pentecostal churches, kind of all of those churches, that's, that's their prominent belief. That puts Lutherans kind of way far away from that because when, when Lutherans look at this from an amillennial perspective, we would say, or our interpretation is, is that the, the, the number thousand is symbolic, and then also it's not a literal reign of Jesus on earth. So there's, there's a difference there in terms of what uh, Lutherans would say. So anyway, that's the approach that I'm taking is millennial. So what that means is, is that from basically the time of Pentecost, which was the launching of the Christian church on earth to Judgment Day, which is then the beginning of eternity in terms of body and soul together forever in heaven, all right, is that the seven visions that are described in Revelation are all one time, it's all one span of time, but it's not that each vision represents a different era. A specific era. Folks that attend to the the millennial uh, perspective, the millennialistic perspective, b- believe in the idea that each vision represents a separate dispensation. It it represents a separate era in uh, in the history of the church in the world, and and that's the millennialistic perspective. The Lutherans are amillennial. So does that make any sense? Okay. And again, it's not to say that. One is necessarily right or wrong. It's probably going to be that when Jesus comes again, and then we're all standing in line in heaven, you know, when we say, okay, now what did you really mean? Okay, so then we'll kind of find out. It's not, as Pastor Coleman would often say, it's not a heaven or hell issue in terms of 
what that interpretation is. And the reason why that is, is because Revelation is a book of symbols. And the the difficulty with symbols is, is that there might be one or two or ten different interpretations. Okay? The, 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 The reason why I like this approach is, number one, I'm Lutheran. Okay? Number two, I was reared this way. Okay, there is that. But, but again, one of the differences is that when Lutherans look at this, we don't get so enamored by what's going on up here because our focus is here, right? And, and again, sometimes a, I think a legitimate criticism of Lutherans is, is that we're so focused here is that we forget about what's going on here. And that's always a possibility, right? Is that we just go, oh, okay, heaven, 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 and we're oblivious to everything going on around us. That's not good either, right? The flip side of it is, is that you can get so um, focused on each one of these that you miss the joy of this because we're all anxious about this, okay? So if you look at it from that point of view, the extreme of anything can be detrimental or at least can be difficult for you in your life, okay? So, um, so I put the, the, the big highlights up here. Jesus rose again on Easter. He ascended into heaven. But Pentecost is when the, uh, the launching of the New Testament church. Now, one of the things that's interesting about that is, is that prior to Pentecost, how many apostles were there? There were 12. Remember? Now, remember, what, what, what happened there? Judas killed himself, so that made 11. So what did, they, what did the disciples do? Yeah, they, they uh, threw the dice, right? Played a little 21 or whatever they were doing. And so, and so then they, the lot, they did lots, right? And the lot fell to Matthias, remember? And then now, you, now you're back at 12. Okay, that's going to be an important little piece to keep in your mind, all right? Now, what's interesting is shortly after Pentecost, James, one of the apostles, was beheaded, why didn't they replace him? Because that made 11 again. Why didn't they replace him? You ever thought about that? It's kind of interesting. Because the launching had already occurred. They needed 12 in order to launch. Now, why 12? Because as the New Testament, the new Israel of faith needed 12 to coincide or parallel with the Old Testament, 12, right? 12 tribes. Now, again, what was, what's important here is this little phrase, of faith, right? What would be the difference between Israel as the nation of Israel and Israel of faith? What's the difference? Jesus. Wasn't that always the deal in the Old Testament? Is that God's continually focused on your heart, the Israel of faith, right? There were a lot of people that claimed the nationality of Israel. A lot of people claimed the birthright of Israel. We are Hebrew. We are all the things that we are. But mixed in that group were people that were idol worshipers, people that could care less about God. They just wanted either out of Egypt or they wanted the glory of the promised land or they wanted their own space, you know, whatever was the thing, right? But it wasn't about faith. And so all through the Old Testament, God is, is raising up prophets 
to say to the people of Israel, it's not about your name. It's not about your nation. It's not about any of that. It's about what? Your relationship to Yahweh. Your trust in Him, your faith in Him. That's what it was always, always about. Okay? Now, what's interesting over here is that we call it the new Israel of faith. So we'll, we'll play with that a little bit. But it also speaks of the idea that not everybody in the Christian church or not everybody who claims to be Christian is a person of faith. And that's very interesting today. They're, you know, they're doing a lot of... Um, a lot of surveys, a lot of, you know, looking at this whole thing in terms of, I, I read somewhere that 73% of Americans uh, claim uh, some sort of affiliation as Christian. And yet 40% don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. <laughs> so it kind of makes you wonder, what, number one, what's their definition of what it means to be a Christian. Is it that I'm more of a secular Christian? I sort of identify with a group of Christians. Maybe I, I affiliate in some way, right? But the interesting thing about this moment right here, Judgment Day, is that then we'll know for sure. So right now, we sort of celebrate the fact that, well, I'm glad that you are Christian. I'm glad, okay? But at the end of the day, nobody really knows until what? Until we look in the heart, Okay. So anyway, so anyway, what is this right here? What's the squiggly line represent, do you think? Hmm? That's right, it is. So it, it really has been all along, but we're focused this morning on this. This is your life. That's my life, right? It is. And sometimes it may feel like that, that this particular dip goes a lot further than just the little one here. This is not daily cycling for some people. It's, uh, you know, maybe hourly in some sense. So, so that's what that is. Okay, so does all this kind of... Okay, good. All right. So what, we're do, uh, what we want to do is I'm going to start with a little introduction, which kind of says what I set up here. All right? So a reminder that each of the seven visions reveal the history of the Christian church from various angles of persecution, deliverance, witnessing, and conquering. Each vision enlarges and intensifies the picture of tribulation, which the church must endure until the second coming and judgment day. The scene in the second vision, which is what we're looking at today, shifts from earth to heaven. And then a reminder that some of the numbers now are going to start showing up in, in these visions, and today it is included. That numbers contain symbolic meaning beyond the literal. Now, again, could it be literal? Yeah, it could be. But in a book of symbols, you at least have to entertain the possibility that it may not be literal. It may, in fact, be symbolic. Okay? So what we know is that the numbers that signify completion, totality, uh, something that's eternal is three, seven, and four. At least that's what we've covered so far. Why three? Trinity, Holy Trinity, okay, why seven? Creation, although that was six, but we would include rest. Well, six is three plus three, okay, we get that, all right. And then four, why four? Four corners, four winds, you know, okay, good. Uh, ten is a long or large amount with a defined end. So oftentimes the, the number ten is a, is a long thing or it's a large thing, but it's not eternal. So it ten isn't forever and ever. Ten has a definite end. And then 24, we're going to see that uh, this morning, 
is uh, 12 plus 12, okay? 12 tribes of old Israel of faith and 12 apostles of the Christian church as the new Israel of faith, okay? Does that kind of sort of make sense? Okay, all right, so let's go into verse 4. Uh, oh, no, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So the picture we get is that, that John is in this sort of visionary mode, and we're assuming Jesus, or the voice, says, come up, and I'm going to show you what is ahead for the church militant. Now, these are uh, uh, theological terms. Church militant as it moves toward eternity to become the church triumphant. So where would we put the word, what does the word militant mean, by the way? Hmm? Yeah, it's uh, the word military obviously comes from that or, or is associated with that. So the church militant is right here. Now, that sort of suggests that we are in battle. Are we? Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 The church mother, we're in battle. And if you wanted a reference to that, if you, all you have to do is read Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. What does he say? What does he talk about in that? Those of you that can remember that or will right now Google it, okay? Um, talks about the armor of God. Remember that whole idea? You know, put on the armor of God, and he sort of lists all the armors. He says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers and spirits of the air, okay? And there's a lot in the air these days, right? And some of it has floated down to earth, and we're dealing with that. So, so, so there is some militancy in the sense that um, it's a spiritual battle, and maybe you've talked, about, you've heard before, people talk about spiritual warfare. Okay, very much the battle for the, a person's mind, the battle for the spirit, the battle for the heart is uh, is always with us until what day? Until judgment day, and then we become the church triumphant. So when people today say, "Oh, I sure hope Jesus comes soon." That's what they're talking about, right? Because there is a fatigue that goes along with being constantly in a spiritual war against the devil, against the flesh, against our own sinful nature, you know, against the enemies of the gospel. Um, there's just a fatigue that goes along with that. Okay, and many people are experiencing that and feeling that today. Okay, so let's go to verse 2. He says, At once I was in the Spirit... And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. All right, so let's kind of dig into this a little bit. So 
In the spirit, John sees this vision of a throne in heaven. So when you think of a throne in heaven, what is the imagery or what is the thought that comes to your mind? Throne in heaven. This is a heavenly, glorious vision. Now, what is the value of having a glorious vision of heaven? When, when is it that that vision is the most precious to you? For most people, it's when we're right here, right? It's when we're right here. We, 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 we need it when it's up here, but it's less cumbersome here than it is here, right? And so we get this sense that what, what Jesus is doing right off the bat with John is he's saying, I'm going to give you a picture of heaven that you can hang on to when life takes you here. That when things get out of control, when you think you've got it all handled and figured out, and then it blows up in your face. When your plans for the future included everything except this. He says, the thing I want you to remember is this glorious view in heaven and that that heavenly vision is what I want you to have inside of your head. So how often do you think about heaven? <laughs> see, nobody wants to admit that, do they? Yeah. Yeah. But see, that's good that we think about heaven. And again, not as an escape. Oh, I can't wait to go to heaven. It's not like that. But it's that what the vision of heaven does is it reminds us that there's something greater coming. And we need to know that and remember that, particularly because sometimes... Whoever put all these colors out, I love this, okay? <laughs> sometimes we can get stuck here and we spiral there and it's like we can't get out of it, right? And so that's when not only is it a good thing for us to hang on to, the, the, to that, but for somebody else to come along and remind us of that as well. And again, you know, you often hear me talk about this. The gift that we are to each other is that one of the gifts is, is that we can actually encourage each other in the faith to hang on to to, you know, even if it's the worst ever in your life, to, to, to know that not only are you not alone here, but wow, when we get to here, oh my gosh, we can't even imagine what that's like other than the little pictures that we get of it here, okay? So that's, the, that's sort of the idea of this. So he sees this throne in heaven, and somebody's sitting on it, and apparently... It, there's a nameplate that says someone with a capital S, so we're kind of guessing who that might be, right? And has the appearance of jasper and ruby and emerald. Now, I've seen emerald. I don't think I've seen jasper. Anybody know what jasper looks like? Isn't it? It's a, these are all precious, precious jewels, okay? So again, kind of the thinking, well, what is that talking about? It sort of gives us this sense of majesty and high value, okay? A king's crown and often the, the, the uh, ornaments that the king would wear or the scepter that a king would hold were often very embedded in with, uh, with precious jewels. So we do get this sense of, of that. But the idea of an emerald, emerald is what color? green. And so we think of green pastures. So when you think of green pastures, what, 
is sort of the adjective that you would use to describe green pastures. Peaceful and uh, serene, okay? Cool. Oh, cool is very nice. Yes, the cool color. Well, if it's a green that doesn't have a lot of yellow, then, of course. But we can argue about that uh, later if we want to. (laughs) Yes, okay. All right, so you, but you sort of get this idea, right? This green pasture thing. And for some of us, we would have a lake in there, right? And some bass swimming in there. So there might be any number of other amenities that would go along with that scene, all right? And so again, it's a, there's a comforting picture here. It's a comforting picture that those of us that are embroiled in the battle, we need that. See, because sometimes when you're in the battle, it's really hard to relax. It's really hard to feel that sense of, of God's presence in a serene sort of way. Okay, so now the surrounding the throne... We get the number 24, 24 thrones, 24 elders. And so the vision of this, this sense of it is, is that we have this picture of heaven and God's on the throne and and Jesus is there somehow. And now you have the Old Testament and New Testament believers of faith gathered around. And so then you get the flashes of lightning and the rumbling and and people are dressed in white. And by the way, that tells us what about them? Yeah, that these are the, this is the way that that revelation up to this point has described believers, right? They're dressed in white. So that's a good thing. I guess there'll be no plaid in heaven, I suppose, huh? All right. And so you get the lightning and you get the rumbling and you get this, this mighty sense of God's power. The only thing that I can think of that biblically would have approached that would have been when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai. And you have all of this presence of God in that very, uh, uh, that very uh, uh, descriptive way. And so you have the seven lamps are blazing, which we are reminded, what? what are the seven lamps? The Word with the Spirit. Okay, so you have the seven lamps You have the seven spirits. Now, again, seven is a number of what? Totality. So we know that God's spirit doesn't have seven spirits. There's the totality of the spirit. So we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And then in front is what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So one of the interpretations that I looked at said that that what that reveals is the idea that we see the heart of God that God is transparent, that God reveals himself in the way that he reveals himself to us through the word. And so the word tells us about God that he is both a just judge as well as a loving father, right? And again, people kind of today forget that. You'll hear a lot of that today in Christian uh, uh, people that that talk about uh, Christianity or people that are annoyed with people who uh, are in Christianity will say, well, God is a loving God. And if God is a loving God, then he accepts you as you are. And that means that whatever your life is, whatever is going on in your life is okay because God is a loving God and he accepts you as you are. What are they forgetting or failing to realize when they focus in on the idea that God is a loving God? He's also what? He's also a just judge, right? But, and, but that's not very popular today. So people will say, well, 
yeah, yeah, that was Old Testament where he was um, just judge. But in the New Testament, he's a loving father. And so we're in New Testament. And so that's where our focus is. Okay. That's taking half of God and saying, I like that half. I don't like the other half. And who does? Right? I mean, do you want somebody telling you how to live your life? How many, let's do a little a poll here. How many of you would like to have God, uh, anybody telling you how to live your life? See, how sad. Nobody wants that, right? But that's, isn't that the, the truth of how it is? Is that, that God's word talks to us about how to live our lives as people who love God, right? But it starts with God loving us. All right, let's go to the next part. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like a golden retriever. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean like an ox, which at times is like our golden retriever, right? The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Okay, so now we have the number four. All right, so four living creatures. And this is a symbol of the complete assembly of uh, of, of creatures that God has created. And maybe, and I'm sort of thinking out loud here a little bit, but maybe that's the idea of heaven being a recreated garden, right? Garden of Eden. And we kind of talked about that a little bit. So the beautiful thing about this that I love is that it sort of suggests that animals will be in heaven with us. Um, how many of you have done pet funerals at your house? Anybody done pet funerals? How many of you might have a little pet cemetery in your backyard? Yeah, I know it sounds kind of gross, but actually it's, um, it's a pretty neat idea that God as this creator of things and, and creatures, why would he stop creating once we get into eternity? Right? And so then there won't be any pet cemeteries in heaven because, you know, there won't be any cemeteries. So how great is that, that, that we will be surrounded by uh, things that love us and that we love in addition to, uh, to God. So imagine heaven filled with animals that are as sweet as Triton. <laughs> is that nice? Yeah. Now, the question, of course, is will there be cats in heaven? <laughs> Well, we have a few cat people here. We have cats in our life, you know, and they're okay. The cats I like are the ones that think they're dogs, so that's really great. But the reason why cats will be in heaven is so dogs have something to do. So there, that's, that's my theory. All right, so anyway, so let's look at this. I know, we're, who knows where we're going today with this. All right, so there's a lion, okay? So a lion represents wild and untamed creatures, okay? An ox is domesticated, so that would be representation of, of uh, all domesticated. All right, face like a man suggests that we're talking about human beings, of course, and then flying eagle would suggest fowl of the, of the air. Okay, so again, it's sort of this, this representation 
of all of creation is gathered in the presence of or around the throne itself. And then there's this, this interesting description is that each of them had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. I mean, that's kind of macabre when you think about that, eyes all around. How ooh, I don't know if that's comforting or not. But it sort of gets the sense of that these creatures are fully conscious. They're aware of all that is going on around them. And in that awareness, what are they doing? They're continually singing praises to God. It's almost as if it sort of uh, matches the psalmist who said, uh, praise the Lord, O my soul, let all that is within me praise his holy name. See, all that is within you, what you see, what you think, how you feel, what you say, the whole thing. Okay? Tracking? We tracking? Okay, good. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. What's being emphasized there in what they're praising or what they're saying in their praise. What's being emphasized? That God is what? He's the creator, right? That is not very popular today. To talk about, number one, God. There's a lot of people that say there is no God, so that's the atheist mode. Um, there's a number of people that say, well, I believe in a God, but, you know, it's kind of an intellectual idea of a God, but not necessarily relational. And there's a lot of people who believe that God did not create the, the heaven and the earth. Now, so let's talk about that a little bit. From a biblical point of view, is it debatable, legitimately debatable, that God created the heaven and the earth and all of us and all of creation? Is that legitimately uh, debatable that God did it from a biblical point of view. No, not from a biblical point of view. Now, there's a lot of people today that say, well, that was, you know, it was, it was, it was, but um, science or other uh, anthropology or other things, archaeology would say otherwise, okay? But the difficulty is, how would they prove otherwise, okay? So from a biblical point of view, it's not really debatable to say whether God did it or not. Is it debatable from a biblical point of view to say um, how he did it? Maybe. I mean, God, you know, in, in the Bible, it just, it says that he spoke it and it was so, okay. Did he use like a big bang or did he use like, uh, like, a, like, like that? I mean... <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, there, there might be some room for that. All right. Um, let's see. Is it debatable to say how long it took him to do it? Sure. So now we'll get into the fuzzy area. All right. So the Bible talks about six-day creation. And some people say 24 hours a day because that's what we're used to. And that's how it says in the Bible. There was evening. There was morning. Right. The first day, second day, third day, etc. Okay. So we'd say 24 
But it, it, it might be debatable because that word today in the Bible is used several different ways. Okay, can you think of a, a Bible verse or a reference where the word day is used not to mean 24 hours? Day is a thousand. Yeah, so there is a reference to a day of, okay. But remember, uh, I think it's in First Peter, I think so. I, I never remember where stuff in the Bible is. I know it's so annoying as a pastor. Um, um, but he'll say a day in your courts is like a thousand years. So it does sort of open the door for the possibility for, for somebody to say, well, you know, the word day in, in Hebrew is the word yom, Y-O-M, okay? And so sometimes that word is used to mean 24 hours. Sometimes it's used to mean a long period of time. So there is a little bit of debate even within Christendom about the length of time that it would have taken. And I think, I think for most people who study geology, for example, they're kind of trying to figure out how the strata of the earth, you know, I, I, oftentimes I have a lot of high school kids that are going through geology uh, or the sciences, and, and they're getting a heavy dose of uh, evolution and, and how we organize things, all that kind of thing. And they're trying to put all that together with the biblical faith that they grew up with and how does it go together, okay? Some things we probably put into the category of, well, this is just what I believe, okay? It's what I believe. But the question that I always want to know is and want to have us think about is what is at stake if I take God out of the picture, and I say, number one, he doesn't exist. And number two, he had no part in my being here on earth. What's at stake? Oh, there's a ton at stake. Now, yes, eternity for sure. Because if I take God out of the picture, then I'm also saying eternity is out of the picture. And so then I say, well, then there is no eternity. I just say, well, you live your life. Do the best you can, and then at the end, there's nothing. And there's a lot of people who believe that. And if you say, well, what about eternity? They'll say, prove it, and you'll go, well, okay, well, I'll have to wait on that one. Yeah, Tim? Doesn't that fall in the same category as those that are marginalizing God right now? I mean, you look at, like, the woke church and all this stuff where they're taking sections of the Bible that they want to believe and some that they want to ignore, which falls right back into the trap of Revelation 22 where it talks about add nothing and subtract nothing from the Bible. See, why do you just do this? Why do you, why do you go there? <laughs> We're not ready for the end of Revelation yet. We're barely into chapter 4. Point out the fact that there's black and whites in the Bible that we all can agree upon. I mean, thou shalt not kill pretty black and white, right? But when we get into some of the other ones that are gray areas or things that we're trying to interpret, yes, we can debate, agree, disagree on those but the Bible itself, we can't disagree with. It's there. Oh, we can disagree with it, yeah. <laughs> it's whether or not it's legit to, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. because there is a lot. There's a lot there to agree or disagree with. But see, what I'm getting down to, rather than debating the whole of Scripture and what part of it that we can say literal, symbolic, what, that kind of thing, okay, is I want to get down to the fundamental question. The fundamental question is being addressed right here. You are worthy, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you did what? You created. That created means make something out of nothing. 
See, it doesn't say you reformed all things. It doesn't say that you adapted all things. It doesn't say that. It says, it's using that word created, and he does it twice. By your will, they were created. Now, again, we can argue about how long it took. We can argue about how he did it. But the, what's not debatable is he did it. And I'm asking the question because there's a lot of people today that take God right out of it, and they say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's what you're making out of life. It's not, God doesn't have anything to do with it. And I'm asking the question, what's at stake if you take that perspective? And I would argue there's a lot at stake, and a lot of what we're seeing in society today fits that. I'm not ready to use the word woke yet. <laughs> well, not everybody knows what that is. And the definition changes so much, I'm not ready to go there. But I want to I look at it from the, perspective, uh, from the perspective of a description of it. Okay. Because I'm going to try to stay away from trigger words, although I loaded some of them in here. So I already forewarned Pastor Coleman on this. So I said, you know, we're going to be talking about some of this stuff today. And um, there might be some people that hear it who might get bothered by that, uh, for sure, on the podcast. Okay? But I just don't want to pussyfoot around anymore. You know, that's just kind of how I feel. So, yeah. I, I think when you take God out of creation, the fundamental thing is you've removed value to anything that's created. Yeah. It's, it's valueless. So, yeah. Uh, that guy's life isn't important. Yeah, or the value changes from the idea that God has something to do with it and God, God's timing had something to do with it and it's just sort of, well, you're an accident of evolution or whatever it is. Okay? Yeah. So we're going to talk about that. Okay. Yeah, Max. You know, well, there's a scientific experiment going on in the world right now uh, in Switzerland, some of you may know about it, it's CERN, you know, the Hadron Collider. And it's run by a bunch of physicists that are not religious. They don't believe in God. Right. And they're trying to discover what created the universe by accelerating particles. Mm -hmm. And they, they pretty much discovered it now. What's the glue that holds everything together? Dark yeah. matter and light matter is what they're getting into now. Is that like the God particle? Is that where that comes from? Yeah, or is that... that came out about four years ago. Oh, see, I'm way behind on stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they discovered the God particle. Yeah. And, and, and they want to recreate things now. Mm -hmm. They want to create a universe that they can control. Well, I think that's, that's always going to be the lure. And, and we'll, we'll be talking about this in subsequent uh, lessons. That we don't disparage what the intent is. See, things are so goofy today, and the world feels very much like this, right? And so when the world feels like this, what is it that we all want? We want the world to feel like this, right? And we think to ourselves, well, maybe there's something I can do about it to make the world be like this, but then stay like this. And the problem we know is that the human condition has sin in it, and it's, we're corrupted in you know, sinful nature and all that, and, so, and the world is broken. So we know that once you get here, it isn't going to stay here. Life doesn't work that way. Life goes down, and it goes up, and it goes down. That's, that's what it does. And when it does, that's very disconcerting. And so there are a lot of people, and we've seen this through history, is that people, even people of faith, and sometimes especially people of faith, will say, this is intolerable. 
we have to do something about it. We'll change society. We'll make it all better. We'll, uh, maybe we'll just go off and start our own society. And so history has a lot of that, too. A lot of um, traditions in, in the uh, historical church. The monastic movement was a good example of that, where in the Middle Ages, a lot of the life was pretty bad here. So the thought was, I'm going to go off and into the desert or in the woods or the mountains or wherever, and I'm going to start a perfect community where everybody will love each other and everybody has their own job to do and, and will be productive and will be able to, to escape and avoid the perils of this. The problem being what? No matter where you go, you what? You always take you with you. And the you that is going with you is broken and sinful and selfish and prideful and all the stuff that the Bible talks about. So the you I'm taking with me is me. And then all the other me's that go with me are exactly like me. <laughs> if I'm talking above anybody's head, please let me know. Glenn, you had your hand up before. You forgot what it was. <laughs> See, that's perfect. If I wait 20 minutes to call on somebody, they won't even remember what it was they wanted to know. Okay. But if you think of it, let me know. Okay. So, so again, see, it's this idea that, that as I go through this, we would say from our Christian perspective that what sustains us is God is our relationship with Jesus, is knowing that we are, we are saved by grace through faith. That's what sustains us. But if you take that out of the picture, what do you got? Yourself. And so what, what, what happens is, is that the source of everything that you see in your life is either God-sourced or self-sourced. And so I want to talk a little bit about the, the peril of that because there are moments in life when we have those human thoughts. Is this real? How do I know? I got everybody and his brother around me telling me, well, that's, this is all there is to it. And, you know, you wonder about it, don't you? You know, that angel over here or the devil, whichever one it was, you know, he's talking to us the whole time. And so again, it's this idea of keeping our focus here to eternity, not to exclude everyday life. So I put together some thoughts. Did somebody uh, have their hand up before I get to, I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, Dennis. Well, I was just going to say that throughout history, mankind's been trying to prove God can exist. And there were an awful lot of very sophisticated scientific experiments that are still trying to yeah, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is kind of repeat what you're saying so that I don't know if everybody can hear it. Yeah, you're so soft-spoken that we all kind of want to do this. Oh, okay, yeah, stand up. That Your voice will get better. Throughout history, mankind's been trying to prove that God does not exist. And Max just gave a perfect example of that. However, every time they run an experiment to try to prove God doesn't exist, they get to a point just to something said, there's got to be some kind of intelligence here. The same thing with when Max talked The particles thing? The particles. Yeah. And so there's got to be some kind of intelligence there that we can't understand. We can't make go away or we can't replicate yeah. all of our experiments. Mm -hmm. And they're doing that 
intrinsically have, yeah. they still can't do it. Yeah. Well, God keeps throwing a monkey wrench in there, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit of who lit the fuse, you know, I mean, there was probably a pretty big firecracker that went off, but it's who lit the fuse <laughs> and who invented fire to light the fuse anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Carl. Going along that point, the odds of the Big Bang putting Earth in exactly the right position with a moon that is exactly balancing the Earth's rotation is so astronomical that it goes to God only could have done that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. It's just a different, I don't know, different is probably not, doesn't quite capture the essence of it. I think it is, an, it, there's, there's our opposing lenses through which people look at things. Okay, and one of the things that we probably can learn from this is that once people have made up their minds about something, it's pretty hard to change it. And, and, and there's a lot of emphasis today on prove it. Show me, right? And so the beauty of this is that that's why as we're walking through life, it, the life is a life of faith. Faith is really hard to prove, right? But it's what sustains us even through uh, our own doubting, the moments when we have it, which for most of us hits us right here, right? Okay. Or, and it hits somebody else we care about right here. Um, that's when that hits us. Or it's the, um, the doubts that come from other people who will say, well, then, okay, okay, make your best case. And maybe we're not prepared to do that. Maybe we haven't given enough thought to it. Okay, so that's kind of where I'm taking this this morning. Uh, well, that's the goal anyway to take us there this morning um, in the next like two minutes. Yeah. Can it be that in a way, um, the fallacy that we have. Yeah, the fallacy. Is that we fail to respect the strength of the objection. And we try to talk right good. Yeah, and, maybe. And that's very we, can't, we, we may not realize, but we are being very disrespectful of the thought that they have put in to get into this bad position. Sure. You know, they, they really thought hard to reject God. <laughs> you know? You kind of have to go against your nature to do it, don't you? you? Know, yeah. Then if we just dismiss them, yeah. that's very disrespectful. Yeah. And, uh, Good luck on trying to win an argument with somebody you just disrespect. That's really true. Um, one of my uncles on my uh, dad's side of the family was a physicist. And they lived in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And he was one of the team that built the atomic bomb that they dropped on Japan. He was a self-acclaimed atheist. Okay? Now... I was a kid, so I didn't ever really get to talk with him. I, I think I wish that I could have, okay? But all his kids, who are my cousins, and we're all kind of this age range, they grew up with the dad that was very science-based, and these kids all have science brains, so they're all either scientists themselves or doctors or oncologists or, you know, um, you know I feel so dumb when I'm around them. <laughs> But what's interesting 
is that through the influence of their mother, who was my mom's sister, my dad's sister, um, who was staunch Lutheran, in fact, um, stubbornly staunch Lutheran, as we would say, <laughs> she made sure that each one of the kids were baptized. And Uncle Bill, that was his name, Uncle Bill, he, uh, he never objected, but he never himself came around to the faith. He just made sure that he didn't get in the way of, of Aunt Sally to make sure that they were all baptized. And what's interesting about that is, is that the faith somehow was sustained given the not objection to it from my Uncle Bill, just I, I think the science part just consumed him to the, in the sense that he, could, he just couldn't go there, maybe publicly. Now, I don't know, toward the end of his life, I don't know what happened there. But what is striking to me is that um, a year and a half ago, I went and did the wedding of the daughter of one of my cousins, who is the doctor up in Montana. And they wanted a Lutheran wedding, which was so amazing given what they were raised with. So sometimes we, we get, I think, a little bit, uh, we feel a little depressed or a little crunched because we think that when the word encounters someone who is, is adamant in their belief either about the existence of God or that God isn't, doesn't exist, we think that somehow the word failed or maybe our expression of the word failed and, and, and maybe nothing good came from it. And all that happened here was the word did a mm, like that and it, it went around and maybe in some way came back and touched him in some way toward the end of his life. I, I don't know. We'll find that out when we get to heaven. So the point I'm trying to make is, is that there's a lot at stake if people, if people don't embrace the idea that God created and that God exists, it costs something. It costs them something, but if enough people hold to that view, it costs society as well. And so I just want to sort of hit some of these with you, and then we'll come back to them next week if you want to do that. Okay, last page. What's at stake if people choose not to believe in God, or they choose not to believe in God as creator of all things? All right, so number one. Life's value, and Richard pointed this out, life's value is limited then to its usefulness and efficiency. If your life is not useful, if you are not productive, what good are you? And that's the ultimate destination of this. So the answer to that is all life matters because of its created value in the image of God from its conception to the end of temporal life. See, why, do we, why would we say life has value? It's nice if you can do something with your life. But what if you are born in such a way that it would be very difficult to say, oh, okay, you're going to be productive in your life. You have no value? Of course you have value because you're creating the image of God. Just because we in our limited, finite brains can't figure out, well, how does that all fit together with this sort of uh, round peg in a square hole? You know, what are we going to do with that? You know, um, just because we can't figure that out doesn't mean that somehow 
that life is valueless. But that's where society would like to take it. And so, see, it opens the door for abortion on demand and euthanasia. We make the decision then as to whether that life will be a burden or that life will be a gift. And then at the end of life, we make the decision about whether that life will be a burden or that life will be a gift. If God's not in the picture, then that decision is self-sourced. And then I'm deciding it on the basis of what I think is best and not even considering the possibility that God might have another reason for that person to be born or that person to live beyond what we would even think would be a useful life. Make sense? Yeah, sobering. Number two, what's at stake if people choose not to believe? Life has no inherent spiritual connection to the Creator, and therefore a sense of purpose and meaning is determined by what you make of life. There's no eternal source of inner peace, of faith, hope, or love. Each of these must be self-sourced and thus offers no sustainability in the face of loss or turmoil. See, if the only thing that you have to turn to when you're down here is you, without God, you may get up here, maybe circumstances change and you just get up here, okay? Or maybe, you know, enough time passes and you forget about here and you get up here. I mean, there's a lot of things that we probably can do to propel ourselves up there. The problem is that offers no peace because it becomes dependent on, well, I'm up here, but I can see this coming, right? And so very often what can happen is that people will artificially try to stay up here. Maybe I got to take something, drink something, look at something, do something, whatever it is, I got to keep it from, ha from going down here, which is like a dead end. Okay? So the answer is the purpose and meaning of life is connected to God's plan and timing. Have you ever thought about the idea that God planted you here? Good. Keep that up. Keep that thinking up. God planted you here. Have you ever thought about the idea that God planted unbelievers around you? Keep thinking about that. A couple Wednesdays ago, we did the parable of the weeds. And that hit me all of a sudden. It was like, holy cow, God has planted enemies of the gospel all around us in addition to friends of the gospel. Okay. Wow. That's pretty cool. Now we know why there are people around us. And then secondly, anything that's self-sourced is corrupted by sin and thus dependent on everything going right. Now, do we like things to go right? I love things to go right. I want things to go right. I just don't want to be dependent on it. Because some things don't go right. And it's other people's fault when it does. Right, Bill? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Tim, one more thought and then we got to quit. Doesn't tie into the, the valleys that we have in our life that if we propel ourselves... I almost tripped over myself and landed in your lap. That's what happened. <laughs> if we, if that would have been a scene, don't you know? Yeah. If we were able to obtain this perfect life at the top of those peaks, yeah. how much growth would we have? How much trust would we put into Christ because we haven't gone through these valleys? Well, yeah, I mean, why? why I, I'm self-sustained then. I, I, don't, I don't need it, right? Okay, and I don't need you, frankly. Okay, I guess we're going to pick up where we left off, okay? Is this okay if we do that? Because I think there's some real, some real powerful stuff here that says a lot 
about what's going on in, in our society, in our culture, in our world. Okay? So think about it. Maybe chew on it a little bit. Um, please don't email me. But we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll dig into it next week. Okay? Sound good? All right. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. And thank you for the, the wisdom of your word, especially in the book of Revelation. It's, it, it's sometimes kind of hard to follow, hard to understand. But the core message is there for us that we're living in this life, not so enamored with this life that we're not looking ahead to the next life. And that's where the real joy is. But the joy of the life to come is what propels us forward in this life. So help us grab onto that. Help us live it. And also help us share it because there's a lot of people in the world around us looking for that very thing. So watch over us this week, dear Lord, until we're together again. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.